Life can be mighty, monotonous. We're always battling boredom. Wait, tell me where has it gotten us? Everything's still so doggone on drum, stuck in a rut, getting nowhere fast. Ooh, hum drum blues. Fighting the future and mad with the past. I'm drum blues. Oh, honey, when you ain't got money, then just can't do as you choose. That was singer and 2012 jazz master Sheila Jordan singing humdrum blues. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Sheila Jordan is one of the great singers in jazz. A superb scat singer, she can just as easily reach the emotional depths of a ballad. Whether singing well-known standards or original material, Sheila Jordan makes it sound like no one else on earth. Sheila Jordan grew up in Pennsylvania's coal mining country with her grandparents. She sang in school and on amateur radio shows. In the early 1940s, she returned to live with her mother in Detroit, where she heard a Charlie Parker recording. It changed her life. From that moment on, she devoted herself to jazz. She met some of Detroit's young musicians during that time, like Tommy Flanagan, Kenny Burrell, and Barry Harris. And as part of the trio Skeeter, Mitch, and Jean, Sheila was Jean, sang versions of Charlie Parker's bebop solos. When she moved to New York City in the early 1950s, Sheila Jordan sang in clubs and at jam sessions with some of the city's jazz giants, including Charles Mingus, Herbie Nichols, and Charlie Parker. In 1952, she married Parker's pianist, Duke Jordan. But Duke Jordan was addicted to heroin and abandoned his family. Sheila Jordan worked for years as a secretary in an advertising firm but she still managed to keep music in her life by singing in clubs and in churches. In 1962, with her first recording, she showed her vocal finesse with a 10-minute version of You Are My Sunshine on George Russell's album, The Outer View. Thanks to Russell, she released her first album, Portrait of Sheila, on Blue Note and became the first female vocalist to record for that label. Jordan became a member of the Steve Kuhn Quartet and is the pioneer in bass voice duo and jazz. From the late 1970s until 2005, Jordan taught jazz vocal workshops at the City College of New York, and she continues to run workshops both locally and internationally. Sheila Jordan has received several honors, including the 2008 Mary Lou Williams Award for a Lifetime of Service to Jazz. And now she's been named an NEA Jazz Master. I spoke with Sheila Jordan the day after the 2012 Jazz Masters Award ceremony and concert. I began our conversation by asking her, when she left her job at the advertising agency at the age of 58, did she ever anticipate her career blossoming as it has? Oh, my God, no. No, no. But, you know, I never expected too much. All I wanted to do was like just do the music and keep the music alive and be the messenger of the music either by singing it or going out to hear it, listen to it, or teaching it, which I, you know, I got into teaching, which was a wonderful turn in my lifetime. 
I never in my life thought I was going to get this far with it. The advertising agency, Doral Dane Burnback, was a great creative advertising agency. And when they merged with another advertising agency, they gave me the option of either staying there with them and floating around being a typist, or they gave me a year's severance pay because I'd been there for so many years and, and said, you know, you can come back if, you know, I started to cry. I was so upset. I said, I'm losing my job. But I was always singing. You know, I always sang. I always found places to sing. That's what I try to tell the young people today that I teach. You will find a place to sing if you really want it, even though you have to support the music until it can support you. And that's what I did. So at 58, that's when it happened. They said I could either stay there or take the money. And uh, when I started to cry, then a little voice came in my head and said, why are you crying? You've been praying to sing more all these years. Now go out and do it and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I did, and I have never looked back. That's great. It is, it is. I am so blessed. You sang when you were a kid. Yes. You always sang. Yes. Partly because it's what you did, but partly it was sort of like chasing the blues away. Yeah, I was a very unhappy little kid because of the surroundings, you know, the poverty and the coal mines and the miners and the mine explosions and everything that was going on. And then, unfortunately, you know, some in my family, like my grandfather, who raised me until I was 14, he had the disease of alcoholism, and it is a disease I found out years later. But uh, I used to sing to keep myself happy or connected, I should say, too. And I used to have to go to the store and pass a graveyard. (laughs) I was so terrified of this graveyard, you know? And so I'd sing to the top of my lungs until I got past the graveyard. Now, you were born in Detroit. Yes. How did you end up in Pennsylvania? Well, my mother was very young when she had me, and uh, my father uh, didn't stay with her. He went on and married another woman after he divorced her. I think He married her to give me a name in those days, you know. And she couldn't raise me. She was like 17, so she was so young. So she sent me back to Pennsylvania, and my grandfather and my grandmother raised me. Did you hear music in that house? Well, not not all the time, because if the light bill wasn't paid, we didn't get electricity. So sometimes we'd have electricity if my grandfather saved enough money after his drinking period, you know, he'd get paid, he'd drink some, and sometimes he'd pay the bill, and sometimes he wouldn't, you know. And so if if he had paid the bill, then yeah, they had the hit parade. So that was wonderful that they had the hit parade. And But uh, we didn't really have electricity most of the time, and we didn't have water inside, and we didn't have a toilet inside, and we didn't have heat inside. We, we heated by a coal stove and a wood stove. And Pennsylvania gets cold. Oh, my God, I guess so. Yeah, it was very cold. Of course, Detroit isn't exactly uh, yeah. warm. But at least when I moved back to Detroit at 14, we had heat and running water and a toilet and a bathtub. <laughs> you moved back to Detroit. You were 14. When did you discover jazz? I was in high school. There was a jukebox downstairs and uh, outside of the school and a uh, hamburger joint, I should say, and they had a jukebox. I saw this one recording. I said, oh, Charlie Parker and his reboppers, that looks interesting. And so I put my nickel in, I think it was a nickel, and I put my nickel in and up came Bird and his reboppers, playing now's the time. I'll never forget it. Changed my whole life. 
perfect title oh for your God. for your epiphany. Yeah. Now's the time he was playing and I said, Yeah. Now's it and I got thrilled. I was thrilled. You know when something thrills you, you get chilled, your back and your you know, your hair right uh, raises on your arms. I, that was it. Four notes. Do you know what it was that thrilled you? I think it was probably the uh, the emotion that Bird played with, the unbelievable emotion and just the way he played. Aside from his technique was fantastic. I mean, how he played those runs so fast, I'll never know. But it was just more than that. It was heavier than just the technique. I could hear Charlie Parker, and I knew at that point in my life that he was talking to me even though I didn't know him at that time. I, of course, knew him years later, but I said, this is talking to me. He's talking to me. I got the message that this is the kind of music I should do, devote my life to, and that's what I did. So what did you do next, Sheila? I wanted to find the places where this music was, and of course it was all in in the Afro-American areas, you know, of Detroit, and very prejudiced there. I mean, oh my God, I couldn't take it. My first boyfriend was Frank Foster, so we uh, had a place together, a little room together, and when Frank went into the Korean War, I moved to New York. People forget how the racial tension in Detroit in the 40s. Well, of course, they had race riots, and you know, they had terrible race riots. But I remember, I didn't care. I said, I'm going to dedicate myself to this music. And I think somewhere in the back of my Mind, I knew it wasn't going to be easy because of the racial prejudice. I got taken to the police station more times than I can count. For? For being with the people that I wanted to be with. I didn't know what color they were. They weren't color to me. They were human beings with souls and hearts and played the kind of music that was their music that I wanted to learn. And that's how I looked at them. So if you were with black people on the street in Detroit, cops would stop you? Oh, God, yes, all the time. Never stopped. One time I know I was in a taxi with the two guys that I used to sing with who taught me so much about scat singing, you know. Skeeter Spite and Leroy Mitchell, and they wrote a lot of lyrics to, uh, to bird tunes. And I was in a cab with them one time coming from a, a concert that we went to or a club. I think it was a club. But we were in a cab, and a cop stopped us. cop car stopped us and said to me, what are you doing with these two? And he used the N-word. I don't use that word. I hate that word. And I looked at him, and I said, oh, I can't be with my brothers? You know, I know they use the term brother today, but in those days, brother meant you were related, blood-wise. And the cop just said, ah, go on, go on. In other words, he thought, what white person would want to say they were black in those days, you know? You saw Charlie Parker perform in Detroit. Yes, when I was young. Yeah, that's when I tried to get into the club (laughs) when I was a teenager. And they wouldn't let you in? No, but he knew we were there. I was there, I forget, I think I was there with Jenny, my friend Jenny King, and I think Barry might have been there and Kenny Burrell, but we were sitting on a garbage can, (laughs) you know, and he knew we were there. Because, you know, I think he saw us through the door. And, oh, man, when I saw him, I was thrilled. I said, oh, I wish I could be an ant and just crawl in and, you know, hear all this wonderful music that I love so much. But he opened up the door. So you could hear him. Yeah. Well, when you moved to New York, Sheila, how did you catch up with Charlie Parker? Oh, well, I went to Birdland because when he used to come to Detroit a few times, 
me and Skeeter and Mitch, these two guys I sang with, we would get him during intermission and sing one of his tunes in his ear. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got in my life was he said, you know what, kid, you have million-dollar ears. That's what he said to me. And I said, oh, my, whoa, <laughs> really? I thought to myself, oh, coming from my idol, you know, this genius. Casting a line to you while the moon was shining bright Yes, one night just like the time I first saw you You set my soul on fire My hopes were higher for I had you And you had me too Oh, babe, let's put our past behind us And live now I know we can be happy, dear And so when I came to New York, I started going out with Duke Jordan Because by that time, Frank and I were sort of separated And, of course, Duke played piano for Charlie Parker, and so Bird remembered me. He said, I remember you. You're the kid with the million-dollar ears. And then we became very good friends. Duke and I didn't stay together that long. He was back and forth, back and forth. But I finally got a loft on 26th Street right off of 8th Avenue, and I used to have sessions up there. And there was a wonderful painter that lived next door to me, Virginia Cox. She was originally from Detroit. And there were painters that lived downstairs. It was like a really artistic building. And we had a great landlord at the time. You know, Bird came to one of these sessions with a, with a, a painter friend of mine. And uh, he remembered me again. And, you know, and he started coming by. And he became a very frequent visitor, you know, and he knew that he could come to my house and lay down when he was tired if he got in a fight with his wife or, she, you know, she'd get angry with him, which is understandable, you know, but... He was still fighting, he was fighting uh, addiction, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 he was. And, you know, he never tried to turn me on to, to drugs. You know, if anything, he encouraged me not to even go that route. He said, this is something you don't want to do, Sheila. You don't want to do this. And... uh And so that's what happened, you know. I would always be home if he'd come up, usually. Well, I still was working a day job, you know, typing in in, uh, the advertising agency. But he would always come up to my house when he needed a place to rest. And I had a bed. It was sort of like a couch almost. Like a day bed? A day bed. That's what it was, right. I had a day bed, and I called it Bird's Bed. (laughs) Tell me what you learned from Charlie Parker. Well, some of the things I didn't learn was to stay away from alcohol and drugs. You know, I should have learned that from him, but I didn't. But luckily, I found a solution 26 years ago. So, And you went to AA. Yes, I'm in program. I'm always in program. It saved my life, and I want to give back. What did I learn from Bird? I learned to, to sing what I felt, but I also learned to sing the melody of the tune, to learn the melody of the tune. Because I know, I know Bird, like he would, he would say, do you know this song? And I'd say, I don't know. And so then he'd play it, and I'd sing it. You know, he'd say, yeah, there's a couple notes in here, though. Get them right. So I remember that, you know. So it's almost like you learn the melody as the found. You have to have the foundation of yes, the melody. Yes, that's right. And then it's, you can yes, move from there. That's right. You, you know, you want to be able to take off and land. And you can't land if you don't have a landing field. You know, that's how I look at it. Yeah or see it, or feel it. And so I always learned the melody of the tune as written first. But what I learned from Bird is the fact that he was so giving. He was so giving. I never saw anybody in my life be so open to young musicians. I remember when I first came to New York, 
And Frank came to New York on leave, and he called me. And I said, why don't you come over? I'm going down to hear Bird tonight. By this time, you know, I was very friendly with Bird. And he said, uh, oh, that would be great. I said, bring your horn, Frank. So he brought his horn, and he came by, and uh, we went down to hear Bird at Birdland. And Bird came off the set, and uh, he saw me and came over to give me a big kiss. And I said, this is Frank Foster, and he's a wonderful saxophone player, tenor sax. And uh, Bird said, oh, I said, Bird, can he sit in? And Bird said, yeah, but Bird was always like that. He said he'd see me at gigs, his, his gigs, and say, come on up and sing a tune. I mean, just like that, you know. He was very open about that, encouraging. He was encouraging, that's what he did. And so Frank got out and played, and after it was all over, he kept playing. Frank kept playing with him, you know, for the whole set almost. So then when the set was over, Bird came over to me, and he said, boy, that soldier guy sure can play. I said, I told you, Bird. <laughs> So, what was jazz like? That jazz scene in New York, like when you arrived here? It was very thrilling. I mean, it was so thrilling. There was an energy that I don't, I don't have today. I had that energy last night, though, at the awards. I felt that energy. Now I don't know if that's because of the older musicians or what it is, but I felt it last night. But there was a certain energy that I find missing today. I hope it comes back again. You know. But it was a special energy, special feeling. I've heard musicians say is that there was a camaraderie mm-hmm. among musicians then. Yes, and they were encouraging. They were very encouraging, you know. Whereas now it seems a little more detached, a little more sterile yes, perhaps. Yes, and a lot of it has to do with the teaching. I hate to put some of the teaching down, but a lot of things happen in teaching. And some of it is like teachers can break students' spirit. And they can be on power trips. You know, you can't tell somebody, that's horrible. Why don't you know how to play this right? I don't teach my students like that. I don't want to break their spirit. That's not what I'm here for, you know. I want to encourage them. Of course they're not going to play it right. It's all new to them. A lot of times I think, especially a lot of the horn players, they learn exercises. All of these exercises. They have no place to try out ideas like sessions, you know. Like your loft. That's right, exactly. And they can't try out ideas and trade ideas with one another. So if they do go to a session or do get a gig, it's like playing a lot of exercises. They're almost afraid to give of themselves. No, no, this isn't everybody. Don't get me wrong, you know. But they're almost afraid. And, And even though they have a lot of emotion and feeling inside, I think they've been, uh, what is the word I want to use? Discouraged, I'd say. They've been discouraged, so they haven't had a really chance to to go out there and try and fall on their face. That's the fun. I mean, I'm still falling on my face. I fell on my face last night, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I missed it. (laughs) Well, I didn't. (laughs) I fell on my face a couple of times, but, you know, I learned from that. You know, I didn't know the Ornette Coleman composition. I didn't have the music for it. I, nobody sent me the music. Nobody's fault, but I didn't know it. But I knew it was a 12-bar blues. But singing the line was difficult because I wasn't sure. So I fell on my face a little bit, you know, and I picked myself up, and I came home. And even though it was quite late, I, I, I put the recording on, and I said, I want to learn this, baby. And I did. <laughs> Better late than never. <laughs> 
So, you know, it's that kind of thing. I want to fall on my face sometimes, you know? I want to improve what I do. I want to stretch out what I do. It's not about being perfect. No, God, no. Who can be perfect, right? You were singing at page three, Mm -hmm. which is a club in the village. Yes. When George Russell comes walking through the door. Yes. And the result was you recording You Are My Sunshine on his album, The Outer View. That's right. But there's a story about how that happened. Yes. Yeah, tell us. (laughs) George came down on a Monday night, which was called Jam Session Night at the Page Three. And usually it was great because we had piano, bass, and drums. And one of the piano players on this specific night was Jack Riley, who was a student of George Russell's. And he came down to hear Jack. And so Jack was playing, and I got up and sang my three tunes that I usually do every other set. And after I was finished, during the break, George came over to me, and he said, where do you come from to sing like that? And I thought, oh, that's a strange question. I said, I was trying to be funny. I said, I come from hell, meaning I have to do this. He said, I'm very interested in what you're doing. I said, really? He said, yeah. So he said, can I have your telephone number? And I, and I said, oh, yeah, that's a good way to come on. <laughs> but I gave my telephone number, and then Jack told me what a great, great artist and composer he was, which I found out later was a genius. So we became friends. We became very close friends. And he called me up and asked me to come down. He said, before that, he said, I would like to see where you come from in the coal mining area. I said, really? It's very depressing. He said, I'd like to go back there. So we went back. We drove back to Pennsylvania near Scoopy Town, Ehrenfeld, where the coal mines are. And my grandmother was still alive. And so she said, let's go up and have a drink at the Bunt. This was a, a private club for miners. So we went up there, and there was only one miner sitting at the bar. So my grandmother was introducing us and saying we were these great big celebrities from New York. I said, Mom, not me, him, but not me. And the miner looked up at me. I'll never forget his face. And, you know, he was like down and out. He said, well, do you still sing You Are My Sunshine, Jeannie? And that was my nickname. At the time, I hated Sheila. Do you still sing You Are My Sunshine, Jeannie? I said, oh, no, I don't sing that anymore. George Russell said, why not? And No, the coal miner said, why not? And then George said, why not? I said, well. So he went over to this old out-of-tune upright piano and started playing it, and I started singing it for this coal miner. And my grandmother literally pushed him off the bench and said, that's not the way it goes. And she played it. And so when she played it, I sang with her. We came back to New York, and I don't remember how long afterwards, not too long afterwards, George called me up. He said, come down, I want you to hear something. So I went down, and he played this incredible introduction. Thank you. 
was incredible and then he stopped and he said sing I said sing what he said sing you are my sunshine I said are you kidding was no background nothing he said you always sang alone with nobody playing for you when you were a kid so do it now I said oh my god I don't know if I can do that yeah you can so I started to sing it to the studio and we recorded it. He wanted it to be called a drinking song for the coal miners. That's who he wrote it for. The arrangement that we do and me singing it is for the out-of-work coal miners of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. 
but he couldn't change the title, he, so we kept it Sunshine. But originally he wanted to call it a drinking song, and that was the story of Sunshine. You are one of the people who pioneered, well, you're not one of the people, you did pioneer. Bass and voice. Bass and voice. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what made you choose this format, and what does it give you? Well, I thought a long time ago in the early 50s, the first person I ever sang a tune with out in public was Charles Mingus. I was in Toledo visiting my half-sisters, and we went to a jazz club, the one sister and myself, Donna and myself, because Charlie Mingus was in town, and I knew Charles from New York. And what happened was he had finished the set, and then he said to me after the set, he said, come on up and sing something. I said, with you? Just you and the drums? You have no piano? There's no guitar? He said, can't do that. He said, yeah, you can. So I got up, and that's the first time I ever sang with just Charles. It was on uh, yesterday's one tune. But I had the feeling of doing the bass and voice in the 50s from singing with Peter End and a, f a few other bass players who were students at Lenny Tristano's. I like the sound of the bass. I might be a frustrated bass player. I don't know. I don't have any time now left to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the bass and voice, and I love the space. I love the space, and I love working off the silence. It gives you a lot of space, but there's also nowhere to hide. That's right. You're out in the open, and I love challenge. You must. <laughs> I, I've loved that ever since I was a kid, so I, yeah, I love challenge. Tell me, when did you start teaching, and how did that come to be? It all started with Ed Summerlin. He asked me to come up and do a little concert for City College, and I went up there with a trio, and we did a, about an hour concert, 45 minutes, something like that. And then afterwards, John Lewis was there, and he was still alive. And so John and Eddie came over to me, and Eddie said, you know, you ought to teach here. And the classical teacher was there, Janet Steele, and she said, yeah, we need to get you up here to do a workshop. I said, are you kidding? She said, no. I said, I don't know how to teach. You know, I don't play the piano. I'm not that technically into the music. And so John said, teach the way you sing. Just teach you. Teach what you do. And that's what Eddie said to me, Ed Summerlin. He said, you'll be fine. So I learned to teach from teaching. And I was terrified the first day I went in to teach. But I was just very honest with the kids. I heard them sing. I gave them some constructive criticism. And it's been a beautiful experience for me. And I don't know. You know, I just try to teach from my heart and and give them the support that I think they, that they need, you know. I love to see young people out there keeping this music alive. It just thrills me. I know your goal was not to be a star, but, <laughs> but to keep the music alive. That's it. But it still must be so gratifying to have gotten this acclaim from the NEA, but oh. also to be able to support yourself by singing. Yeah, well, now I can do that, you yeah. know, that, that along with my Social Security. Wow, well, yeah, I'm doing okay. To keep the music alive is, is what it's all about for me. I mean, if I lost my voice tomorrow and couldn't sing anymore, does that mean I'd give up? No, I'd keep teaching or I'd keep supporting, going out and hearing music and giving moral support. This music, I live with it 24 hours a day. It never leaves me. It's always with me. From the time I get up in the morning until I go to bed, I think I even dream about it. I'm sure it's with me when I dream. 
you know. So that's what it's all about for me. No divas, none of that stuff. I don't want that. That's not what I am. And I'm not putting it down. You know, I am not putting a diva down. I just am not comfortable with that term, you know. I just want to be a messenger of the music. That's what I'm here for. Oh, Sheila, thank you so much. <laughs> and many congratulations. Oh, thanks thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for your belief. And it's been a thrill. I fell in love with love, with love everlasting. Then love fell out with me. That was singer and 2012 jazz master Sheila Jordan. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Confirmation, from the album Confirmation. Music by Charlie Parker, performed by Sheila Jordan. Used courtesy of Test of Time Records. Humdrum Blues, from the album Portrait of Sheila, composed by Oscar Brown Jr. and performed by Sheila Jordan. Used courtesy of Blue Note Records. Excerpt from Falling in Love with Love, by Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart, performed by Sheila Jordan, Use courtesy of Blue Note Records. Excerpts from You Are My Sunshine, from the album The Outer View, and performed by the George Russell Sextet, featuring Sheila Jordan. Use courtesy of Concord Music Group. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we kick off Jazz Appreciation Month with pianist and jazz master Ahmad Jamal. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.